Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Facebook leads the industry in stopping bad actors online. That's because they've invested $13 billion in teams and technology to enhance safety over the last five years. It's working. In just the past few months, they've taken down 1.7 billion fake accounts to stop bad actors from doing harm. But working to reduce harmful and illicit content on their platforms is never done. Learn more about how they're helping people connect and share safely at about.fb.com safety. You just heard a snippet of a Facebook sponsorship message that is currently running on podcasts targeting lawmakers and political influencers in Washington, D.C. Facebook vaunts that multi-billion dollar investment in content moderation every time a senior executive is asked to address the problems of mis- and disinformation, hate speech, abuse, bigotry, and other violations on its platforms. But what does that investment look like at the last mile? Who does the work? What are the conditions they face? It has been 10 years since a group of Facebook moderators working for an outsourced company came forward to then-Gawker staff journalist Adrian Chin to tell the story of their experience. Chin recounted the complaints of a Moroccan man who said he was paid a dollar an hour to screen illicit Facebook content. In her 2014 dissertation on the subject of content moderation in the shadows of social media, a work that would later become a book, UCLA professor Sarah T. Roberts was among the first to produce scholarly work on this phenomenon, using an ethnographic approach to consider the labor issues involved in keeping these big platforms clean. She observed then that, quote, Facebook benefits from the lack of accountability that comes with outsourcing, that is, introducing secondary and tertiary contracting firms into the cycle of production, and that, quote, workers engaged as moderators through digital piecework sites are isolated, with few, if any, options for connecting, for emotional support, as well as for labor organizing with other workers in similar conditions, and without any real connection to the original work sites from which the content emanates. Years later, after billions spent by Facebook on investment into artificial intelligence and other efforts at shoring up its content moderation, the picture has not changed. Today, we hear from a journalist at Time magazine who will tell us the story of the plight of outsourced content moderation workers in Kenya, tasked with moderating the typical stream of gore and bigotry, as well as screening for hate speech and incitement to violence emanating out of war-torn Ethiopia, all for less than $1.50 an hour. Uh, so my name is Billy Perigo. I'm a staff writer at Time Magazine covering big tech, artificial intelligence with a focus on Facebook. So you have been uh, covering this company very closely for some time. Tell us about this piece this week. Well, the headline first is Inside Facebook's African Sweatshop. And it started, I'd like to say a year ago, really, in its kind of most basic form uh, in terms of me trying to look into the role of Facebook in Africa and the role that it was playing there. Tried for a long time to get a story off the ground about the impact of Facebook in Ethiopia by kind of looking at kind of content that was showing up on the platform there. But then at some point I realized that wasn't really the way into the story that I wanted to take, mainly because it's kind of become cliched at this point to be like, hey, there's this piece of content, why didn't you get it? And it, there's only a limited amount that you can say really. So at the time, 
I was talking to WhatsApp content moderators for a different story and kind of realizing, this is in the US, realizing the true extent of how much they kind of don't like their jobs and the kind of grievances that they have with the company and the extent to which, you know, they are effectively invisible in the, the wider tech discourse. Uh, the, the company likes to talk about them as little as possible because it makes their systems look smarter than they actually are. And naturally, they're on much lower salaries than uh, your, your standard Facebook employees who are typically paid in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. These, these people are on little more than uh, minimum wage. And that's if you're in, you know, in the US, you know, for example, that these people are paid approximately $18 an hour as a starting salary. And that got me thinking, you know, what, what kind of people are doing these jobs in places like Africa, especially in terms of the people with responsibility for Ethiopia. So I started looking around. I saw a news report that Sama had signed a contract with Facebook in 2019 to do content moderation. And then the, the trail went cold on Google, basically. I saw that nothing had been written about what was going on in this office. And knowing what I knew about content moderation, I knew that there would be something interesting happening in that office. What is Sama? So Sama describes itself as an ethical artificial intelligence company. It was founded uh, in the late aughts, the late 2000s, as they alternatively call it impact sourcing which is basically outsourcing, but hoping to have an impact on the lives of people that you're outsourcing to. And they also coined a term, uh, which you may or may not be familiar with, of microwork, which is this idea that you can, you know, break up tasks like data labeling that are necessary for an artificial intelligence to do its job, but that needs some level of human intelligence to actually be done uh, in order that you can provide training data for that AI. And that work is quite time consuming. So if you can move it to a place where there is a large workforce, where the cost of employment is lower, um, that's kind of the niche of the market that the company was, was founded to fill. But from the very earliest days, they were big into the kind of corporate rhetoric and PR line of we are helping these people and we are bringing work to them that otherwise without us would not be possible. So it's clear why Facebook would want to work with Sama in Nairobi. They have employees with experience in, in, in multiple African languages. You know, they're working on a, a wide range of content moderation uh, issues there. Take us inside that office. What did you find was happening uh, in, in Nairobi? Sure. So I should say that I didn't actually go. Um, I asked to, but um, I was uh, politely declined. Uh, after that Facebook, delete Facebook cover story as it happens. So I basically started reaching out to content moderators and I heard from the, from the get-go basically that they weren't happy with their jobs. I spoke to more than a dozen uh, current and former people in total. And by the end of it, what the picture that I'd built up was a picture of um, a company that had begun hiring people in early 2019, shortly after signing this contract with Facebook. And the role that this office plays in Africa is that it's the hub for sub-Saharan African content moderation that Facebook does. So they weren't just hiring people in Nairobi, they were hiring people from South Africa, from Nigeria, from Uganda, from you know, all of these, these places. Um, they were looking for people with expertise, not just, not just fluency in English, but fluency in the languages from these places. So actually the hiring was not done from within the office. They kind of went out to these places and told and said, like, there's a job with this ethical AI company. 
we need expertise in English and we need expertise in any given African language. And that's how people started coming. Now, inside this office, what we sh- what I found out was that about four months in, so July 2019, after all of these people had been hired, by the way, some of whom said that they had been hired under false pretenses, not told exactly about what they would be seeing on the job and the mental health impact that what they saw on the job could possibly have. Which, by the way, for the avoidance of doubt, uh, if listeners don't know what exactly content moderation entails, it's basically watching all of the worst things that you could possibly imagine on social media to clean up social media so that people who are scrolling on Facebook don't get confronted with a video of a person being beheaded with an annual grander or, you know, somebody being raped or any number of even more unimaginably horrible things. So it's not a nice job, to say the least. And what these people were saying in this, in this room when they got together was that I didn't expect this. I wasn't aware that the pay would be so low. So you tell the story of Daniel Matong, a 27-year-old university graduate from South Africa who comes to work for Sama. I kind of circled around Daniel for a long time. I'd heard, I'd been speaking to content moderators and I'd heard, they'd, they'd kept telling me that there was a, an attempted strike in 2019, uh, which was basically scuttled by the company, fired its leaders and basically resulted in, you know, people had asked during this employee labor action for higher salaries, uh, for better working conditions. And what had eventually happened was that the leader of the strike was fired and everyone basically got back to work without any ways. So I immediately was like, I need to find this guy, but he, he was pretty off the grid to say the least. Anyway, I started talking to him and his story is, I mean, truly what, what the piece revolves around. Uh, he's the whistleblower on the front cover as well. So he, he joins when Summer opened his office in very early 2019. And four months in, uh, he kind of starts talking to some of his colleagues. The conversations that they're having, that's kind of the point where they all realize that so many of them are feeling the same things. They're feeling that they, the job that they got wasn't the job that they expected. They're feeling that the pay that they're receiving uh, wasn't quite as high as they hoped it would be in the purchasing power of what they're receiving. So they're in this meeting room and they're discussing this and they're like, we should see if our wider colleagues in the broader group of you know, 100 and something content moderators at this point, how they feel. And so they create a WhatsApp group chat. They start kind of talking about about this and it turns out that lots of them are feeling the same way so after all of this conversation goes on in, in the group chat daniel kind of takes the lead he's a kind of if you talk to him he's a charismatic guy um he studied law at university and he drafts this document which has a lot of procedural questions and demands but the central demand in this document is we would like uh, our pay to be doubled because we're not being paid enough this work is destroying our mental health firstly and also, it's not very high. It's, you know, $1.50 an hour for the Kenyans and around $2.20 an hour for people who are hired from elsewhere in Africa who have, they have a relocation bonus that they get paid each month. So in a, in a subsequent meeting with Sam's leadership, Daniel reads out this uh, petition and a couple of employees, a couple of executives from Sam's San Francisco office have joined this meeting uh, virtually, firstly. And according to lots of people who are in that meeting, I'm told that the workers who threatened to strike were talked down to, their demands were dismissed, and the executives on the call from San Francisco said, we are coming to Nairobi. Fast forward a few days later, they arrive. 
Daniel is suspended from his job. He receives a letter telling him that he's been accused of bullying, coercing and intimidating his colleagues. He denies that, obviously. And he's told that he can't speak to any of his colleagues and he must uh, leave the office until his case is settled. Before he leaves, he tells the Alliance, which is what this group of employees are calling themselves, he tells them, look, we are stronger together than we are individually. They can fire any one of us individually, but they cannot replace all of us at once. So as long as we stay together, and as long as you decline requests to go into individual meetings with the leadership of this company, we can we have leverage over them. Unfortunately for them, uh, that isn't actually what ended up happening. Uh, the company, in one way or another, ends up getting a lots of these employees into individual meetings, many of which are attended by the executive, Cindy Abramson, who came over from San Francisco. And in these meetings, according to several people who were, who were in them, the employees who are more outspoken were kind of flattered by Cindy Abramson. They're told, you know, you show, you show leadership potential. There's people in our company who've done really well who are exactly like you and kind of dangled the prospect of being promoted if they could convince their colleagues to stand down from the strike. And the people who weren't, who kind of didn't show those kind of more outspoken tendencies, they were told in these meetings either to revoke their name from the petition, to sign a document saying that other signature that I'd signed on the petition, that's invalid now, I'm sorry, I'm going to get back to work, or uh, resign their jobs. And I'm told that the warnings to the Kenyan employees who remember they're paid less, uh, and this office is based in Kenya, so it's kind of significantly easier for the company to hire new uh, Kenyans who speak Swahili. They were told that they were expendable and that they must get back to work or be fired and easily replaced. So what is Facebook's role in this? Um, how does Facebook interface with Sama? Um, what is the presence of Facebook executives in this saga? That's a good question. Facebook says that it has high standards for its outsourcing contractors, that it makes sure that its, its content moderators paid market leading wages, for example, all of this stuff. And, you know, it sends, I'm aware that it sends some of its uh, supervisory employees from Dublin, which is its global content moderation hub, to Nairobi periodically to kind of lead trainings with these people. So it's not ignorant, firstly. But my understanding is that SAMA's management likes to keep Facebook at arm's length from the employees who are actually doing the work. In fact, Jason White, who is another whistleblower who I quote in the story, reached out to one of these Facebook employees who had come to Nairobi previously. He sends her an email describing his salary and asking, are we being exploited and what can we do? He never receives a reply to that email. But shortly after, he says, Sama um, fires him for making unauthorized contact with a Facebook employee. So we know that Facebook has received these pieces of information about what's going on in this office. And it, it seems has chosen not to act on them. But as far as the responsibility that Facebook has over the, the work that is done on a day-to-day -day basis, that's pretty close too. I mean, like Facebook has a piece of software called the single review tool. And that's the kind of content moderation tool that it farms out to its outsourcing companies. So whether you're working for Sama or Accenture or Cognizant, you basically log into the same piece of software. And that's the piece of software that, you know, provides these content moderators with the horrific, basically, imagery that they are 
expected to look at on a daily basis. Now, at summer, I understand that employees are expected to take action on one piece of content every 50 seconds. And that's a slightly changeable number that I understand can rise or fall in accordance with demand. But Facebook officially, if you look at Facebook's official statements, it says, we do not ask content moderators to adhere to quotas because we believe that they should take as much time as they need on each piece of content in order to make the right decision. But Sama is the one who's setting these targets of 50 seconds per piece of content and holding their employees to those demands as well. Many employees believe that they could be fired if they don't meet them. And you got hold of some of these Facebook guidelines that were, I understand, previously unreported, instructing content moderators on how to, in particular, look at video, uh, which is problematic for Facebook's AI systems. Yeah, that's right. Video is actually one of the hardest things to moderate for an artificial intelligence. It's a lot harder than text, which you can obviously just train a machine learning algorithm to look at. And obviously video uh, images, you know, there's... 60 images per second in a video. So you can see why, how it would become exponentially harder. So these video guidelines that I got hold of are actually Facebook. Uh, they originate from Facebook. And what they say is, as long as a bunch of other conditions are met, like no content violation in the thumbnail, the video hasn't been reported with a flag at a specific point in the timeline. As long as a bunch of those conditions have been met, the content moderator should only watch the first 15 seconds before moving on to the next piece of content. And when I've been speaking to people with expertise in the spread of incitement to violence in the Ethiopian civil war, for example, they say that much of the incitement to violence doesn't happen in the first 15 seconds. And in lots of cases, and in a video that we reviewed, in fact, there's a piece of incitement to violence one hour and 45 minutes into a two hour long Facebook live stream. And the guy who, saying things in that live stream might be saying completely innocuous, although actually he happened not to be um, in that specific case. But you can see why if you're saying get through each piece of content in 50 seconds and only spend 15 seconds watching the first bits of the video in order to try and find this kind of violating content, that kind of incitement might get missed out. And that's exactly what happened for that specific video that I just mentioned. So let's talk a little bit about Ethiopia um, and how this intersects with the ongoing civil war there um, and the conflict between the major ethnic groups that's currently taking place. This group is responsible for essentially Facebook's response to that conflict, to the flow of content related to it. Yeah, that's exactly right. So there's, there's four major languages that are spoken in Ethiopia and a lot more languages that are spoken by smaller groups of people there. Uh, those languages are Amharic, Aroma, Tigrinya, and Somali. As I understand it, Sama only began expanding its Tigrinya team very, very recently. And for all of those other language groups that they've had coverage since 2019. Now, you know, the situation in Ethiopia is escalating and has been for a long, a long time. The war has kind of come in various phases and it's an information environment where there is a lot of polarization um, on along ethnic lines, basically. So it's actually quite difficult. What Facebook needs to do in terms of hiring content moderators is no small feat. And that's kind of the point that I really want to hone in on here. It's like these people are being paid $2.20 an hour, but the skills that they are required 
required to possess are fluency in English, fluency in the language that they're moderating, the ability to read and understand all of Facebook's content guidelines, which run into the last time I checked hundreds, if not thousands of pages, and have the ability to act on you know, a very dynamic piece of content, decide what specifically is violating in that piece of content, if it is, or if it's not, then to make that decision. So they have to, uh, they have to be able to read the guidelines. They have to be able to understand the entire uh, context. Um, they have to be able to, you know, potentially spot, you know, incitements in, in very short order or other violative content. And the other thing is that they need to make a decision in an unbiased manner. And because the war is so polarized right now, uh, it's basically becoming increasingly difficult to find people who are not going to privilege their political side over the other. And that's a problem that Facebook has had actually in lots of parts of the world, including the US. But in Ethiopia, when the number of people who speak the languages is significantly smaller, it's a real, real problem for Facebook. And you need to remember that what they are trying to do with all of this is to train their machine learning algorithms to get better at spotting this stuff automatically. So this has importance, not just in terms of the singular pieces of content that each of these moderators removes on a daily basis, uh, but also the algorithms that it's trying desperately to build, which, you know, Francis Haugen, for example, has said are not up to scratch. And the people who it's paying to do that are being paid $2.20 an hour those skills are in high demand, such a high demand, in fact, that six content moderators who speak Ethiopian languages chose to leave summer in one week in January to move to a competitor who was paying higher wages for a very similar kind of work for a different uh, social media company. You quote Corey Kreider, who is a legal direct- director at Foxglove, this NGO in London that's got involved in the legal case against Sama as saying outsourcing is a scam that lets Facebook rake in billions while pretending worker exploitation and union busting is somebody else's fault. But Kreider points out that it's not just Sama, that that Facebook is doing this all over the world. That's something that she has a lot of expertise in. In fact, um, she's representing uh, content moderators in Ireland, I believe, in Poland and in the US, all of whom have very similar grievances. But um, what I should do here is really finish Daniel's story, because after he was suspended and all of the employees were called into these meetings, after this kind of threat of the strike is effectively quashed, he receives a letter about 20 days later, 15 to 20 days later. And in that letter, he's told that he's being fired because of what he was accused of, which is bullying, coercing, intimidating his employee, his colleagues into signing a letter. And in the dismissal letter that he receives, the company adds, your actions have placed the professional relationship between Summer and our client at great risk. And the client in that case is, is obviously Facebook. When he received that letter, Daniel was drafting papers that would have formally established the Alliance, his group of employees, as a union under Kenyan law. He says that when Summer responded to his overtures, they told him, we cannot negotiate with you because you're not officially a union. So he decides, I'm going to start up a union. But he's dismissed while he's doing that. Kenyan labor law says it's against the law to dismiss any employee because of past, present, or anticipated unionization. 
Um, and the Kenyan constitution says every employee has the right to go on strike. So he was fired, given three weeks to go back home. The case that Foxglove is hoping to take against Sama is one of unfair dismissal, um, arguing that what Sama did to Daniel and by extension to the rest of the um, employees who were involved in the worker action, they're arguing that that was basically unconstitutional, I believe. Facebook disputes this characterization, uh, that it is outsourcing trauma. What did you hear from the company in response to this story? So Facebook says they take the responsibility to people who review content for Meta seriously. They say they require their partners to provide industry-leading pay, benefits, and support. They say that they encourage content reviewers to raise issues when they become aware of them and regularly conduct independent audits to ensure their partners are meeting the high standards that they expect of them. Now, I believe that in my entire correspondence with Facebook, they didn't mention the name Sama once. They didn't respond to any of my specific questions about what exactly they knew, for example, about the unionization efforts. They were pretty unclear about the extent to which the quotas stem from Facebook's side of things or Sama's side of things. But the point that I try and make in the story is even if the quotas and the worker intimidation and everything else has come from Sama's bosses, really it's an extension of a system that Facebook has created for its content moderators through outsourcing. You need to remember that Facebook employees, uh, Facebook employees very few content moderators directly. Most of the 15,000 content moderators who it has around the world are employed by third-party contractors. And that system effectively lets Facebook keep that work, the most horrible work that you could possibly have as someone uh, working on behalf of Facebook, keep that work at arm's length and claim when stuff goes wrong, as it has done in this case. Um, not that, I, sorry, Facebook haven't claimed that it was all Sam's fault, but they certainly haven't claimed responsibility or knowledge of it. And many of the moderators I've spoken to believe that Facebook is basically turning a blind eye and that they know, they have had the opportunity to know on many occasions what is going on here, but they do not want to look. For its part, Sama denies, in fact, that there was any strike or labor action. They say, and I quote, we value our employees and are proud of the longstanding work that we've done to create an ethical supply chain. We exist to provide ethical AI to our global customers and we're proud of the role that our employees play in building new online experiences and cleaning up the internet. It's a tough job and it's why we invest heavily in training, personal development, wellness programs, and competitive salaries. In some ways, the beat goes on. I mean, this is an, another story that you've written about Facebook. We've, we've seen perhaps some similar stories in past about these types of abuses taking place in other parts of the world. Um, the problem of, you know, the kind of experience of, of outsourced content moderators um, is not necessarily a new one. What did you learn, though, about this company, about its role in the world, or how does it fit into your past reporting on Facebook? Everyone who uses Facebook needs to realize that when they are scrolling through Facebook, they are benefiting from the labor of the unseen, invisible people, some of whom are working in developing world countries for very little money, who are putting their mental health and entire future mental health on the line in order to prevent you from seeing videos of rape, videos of being people being brutally murdered, terrorist content, child sexual abuse. That content is uploaded to Facebook, but it doesn't reach you, the end user. 
I think it's actually a moral imperative for everybody who uses these platforms to realize that that work is done and to realize that it's not being compensated uh, to a degree that many people would consider fair. And I hope that in bringing greater attention to these issues, which have really intentionally been swept under the carpet, that the working conditions for these content moderators will hopefully change. What would you say to tech workers, to Facebook employees, to the executives that are making decisions about how to organize these content moderation efforts? I think over the last couple of years, we've really seen an increase in tech workers having an amount of power to force change within their industries. And to a large extent, this kind of work has been covered as workers' rights unionization. And while that is true, there are large numbers of employees who are, uh, so to speak, lower down the food chain who don't necessarily get that solidarity. And I think that it's important for people who are engaged in trying to make the tech industry better to think about these people and to think about what they can do in their privileged position within these companies to change the the structures that are up there. Well, thank you for bringing these stories forward and for making it possible for us to have that awareness. Thank you, Justin. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guest. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.